Professor Bryn Brown's research shows that vulnerability fosters good emotional and mental health. It is a sign of courage. We become more resilient and brave when we embrace who we truly are and what we are feeling. The Vulnerable Scientist Podcast is a space for scientists to tell their honest and authentic stories. I am your host, Saranya Kerry, who happens to be a scientist, informal science communicator, and I help scientists create personal websites. If you want to support this show, go to www.patreon.com slash thevulnerablescientist. You can also follow this podcast on all social media platforms at TV Scientist Pod. I realized from your previous um, explanation of what, how lactobacillus and pseudomonas uh, bacteria work together to suppress this bacteria, and uh, you know, this bacteria is helping to, you know, help with this other bacteria, and you explain it in a very simple manner, in just one sentence. Has that changed that uh, psychom thing? How has that changed over time? Because you mentioned that you presented this on a poster. And now as a scientist, how has that changed, explaining science in simple terms? And why? Uh, you become a lot better at it with practice. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember back then, I would stumble over my words. I would stutter. I would get really nervous. Mm-hmm. Um, it's kind of funny because I watch my kids now go through the same thing. Mm-hmm. And I chuckle and I tell them, well, don't worry about it because people are not going to remember what you said yesterday. Mm-hmm. I barely remember what I said five minutes ago. <laughs> and I tell them, once you get used to that, mm-hmm. then life will kind of up the ante on you. Mm-hmm. So then you end up with people wanting to interview you and putting microphones in your face. Mm-hmm. Where they can play back what you said at a later date. Mm. And then, of course, the first few podcasts or live presentations that I did like that, I got nervous. Same butterflies. Mm. And um, then I realized I don't go back to a podcast more than once or twice. Mm-hmm. So people are probably going to forget about the podcast in mm-hmm. a month or two months from now. Yeah. So that kind of alleviated some of the pressure. Um, but yeah, the first time you do anything you've never done before, you're going to be nervous, you're mm. going to mess up, and that's human. Yeah. Um, just lear- use it as a learning experience and, and continue on. Um, and I've had like over 10 years of teaching experience, so you know, the first time I used the analogy between lactobacilli and clostridium, it did not come across nearly as clearly as the house expression I just gave you. Mm. Oh, so learning uh, with time, you will figure, like whatever you see now, probably in, in the next few years will be different and it would be simpler, right? Of course. And mm. if it's not, then you're not living life right. I mean, you're supposed to change as a human over time. Mm. Your understanding and the way you communicate is going to change alongside it. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Okay, great. So, uh huh. So we are still here. Where you're talking about you, um, you started on a bachelor's in in biochemistry, then switched to to microbiology after this stint in uh, in the infectious lab in a hospital. 
and uh, yes. that's how you got into into microbiology and into research and not go into med school yes so uh, what happens now you had mentioned uh do you want to talk about first the the work that you did for your msc uh the first msc um well in that particular case it was my first stint into bioinformatics without even knowing that's what it was mm-hmm. because Did Dr. You just, which Jackson, is this i'm sorry which year is this? Um, this would be 2001 to 2003. Okay. So yeah, at that time, bioinformatics was not very popular. No, no. Yeah. Computers were not that sophisticated for personal computing. Mm. Um, I mean, we were still using dial-up internet. The computer my mentor had, he had all the cover panels off of it because he wanted it to breathe because he mm. couldn't get enough fan to mm. cool it off for the processing he was trying wow. to do with it. So he had a um, naked computer on it. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. And my husband is uh, someone who fixes electronics. Mm. So I was just dating him at the time, and he's like, that thing's going to be full of dust. And I'm like, hey, I'm not arguing with my mentor. <laughs> it's his computer. <laughs> if he wants it full of dust, that's not my problem. Okay. <laughs> but um, so he taught me that you can use computers in mm. order to do research mm -hmm. and in that particular project it was half wet bench half computers mm -hmm. so we started in the wet bench with petri dishes where we were seeing that one gene um, that was called mj277 had a particular function in terms of it could make branch chain amino acids um, and then this other um, gene, this MJ663, was not able to mm. uh, make branch-chain amino acids. So my first experiment was literally just knock out those genes and see the results and see what branch-chain amino acids are present or not. Mm -hmm. um, but then the program that I was in, the master's degree requirements changed, because remember, this was a new program. Yeah. So I didn't have to do a experimental thesis. I could do a review thesis. Mm -hmm. So then Dr. Jackson's like, well, you already have this experimental data. Why don't we just close your project out by analyzing the sequences of those genes computationally? And then maybe that will tell us why 277 has function where 663 does not. Mm -hmm. And so that was my first introduction into programming. I used Pascal, which isn't even around much anymore. Um, and Pascal? did some, you know, just counting nucleotide frequency, counting amino acid frequencies, comparing mm -hmm. the two of them. Mm -hmm. it, it was really simple stuff compared to what I do now. Okay. But um yeah, that was my thesis then. Oh, so you ended up doing uh doing a thesis on the dry lab part. Well, and the wet bench part also. It was a combined thesis. Okay. Oh. All right. So what happens after you finish your your thesis and now you're waiting to finish school? Like at what point do you get into this bioport? Uh while how? I was uh, well, how was I found a job opening and I applied for it. 
Oh, okay. Okay. It's literally that simple. Um, They needed a technician. I lived down the road. It worked. Okay. Plus, you know. I want money. <laughs> yeah, of course, of course. Uh, so that's interesting because that's now different from how you got your first uh, placement uh, um, after BSc. Yeah, when you when you're doing your BSc, because uh, it's interesting. I, I didn't comment, but it's interesting that you wanted something. You wanted get to get into medicine, and you're trying to create a network, right? Yes. And you knew yeah. where these people used to play. Was it? What did you say? Golf? Golf, yes, golf. <laughs> yeah, so you 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 kind of you tried to connect with these people in very, the informal spaces. I think I, I need to point that out. Like you wanted to com- communicate, uh, connect with these people in informal spaces. Um, why did you get that idea first? Um, for my dad, because oh. my dad was um, an insurance salesman, mm-hmm. and my family was non-medicine. So I learned a lot about business and people mm, from him. Yeah. Um, which was really funny because now he learns medicine from me. He just turned 80 last month. Oh, okay. Wow, interesting. Um, uh, so how you, you applied for a job, you got uh, into Bioport, then that's why you're working on an anthrax, anthrax vaccine, right? Yes, yes. And I did that while I was doing my master's. Yeah. Okay. Uh, how did you balance? Work my butt off. <laughs> wow, okay. How long did I you mean, do that for, for? Like that uh, combined work? Like combined uh, masters uh, and work? Probably about a year. Mm. I mean, if I look at my resume, it's going to be two years. But one of the years was at Lansing Community College, and that was a part-time teaching gig. Mm. Um, Bioport was a full-time job, but at that point, the research had been done. It simply was doing the writing. Mm. And even then, it took me a year to write a thesis. I'm much faster now. Mm. Okay. So um, what, uh, what, what pushed you to do a teaching? Was it money or was it the money, part-time? Money, yeah. I mean, I needed money to survive. Um you know, and at this point, I had met my husband. We were dating. We were starting to talk about, you know, getting married and, you know, settling down, finding a house, etc. Mm. So he had a full time job, was not in school. Mm. Um, so he encouraged me to also get a job um, to further my resume and mm. to get experience because that's what you need to move up. Yeah. So how is that uh, that part-time job? How did that influence you now like as a human being that part-time job as a teacher? Um I mean it's one of my fonder memories even though it was a struggle in the beginning mm. uh, because I was a 21-year-old teacher and mm-hmm. in some cases I was teaching room full of 40-year-old people. Well, the first week I was teaching, the 40-year-olds went and complained to my boss, is this person even qualified to be teaching? And I had to go in there and literally say to all of them, look, until you have a diploma in microbiology hanging on your wall, I recommend you be quiet because I am here and I am trying to help you. (laughs) And it was funny because... 
they actually respected me after that. Mm. They took me out for dinner on the last day of class, and they actually bought me a crystal microscope. Wow. As a gift. Wow. And they did not know that I actually collected crystals. So to get this crystal microscope from the very first class that I ever taught, mm. when they hated me so much the first two weeks, <laughs> yeah. meant so much. And, and I see it every day when I walk through my house, and it just brings a smile to my face. Mm. Oh, wow. I like that. I like that. Um, so now you've, you've gotten to uh, this research as a research technician, um, mm -hmm. how long do you do that for before you go, you go to Pfizer? Um, I was at Bioport for two years, Pfizer for about a year and a half to two years. Okay. Uh, and it's still the same kind of research. Um, yeah, I mean, the anthrax vaccine, we were dealing with Petri dishes, um, trying to basically standardize the amount of spores going into the vaccine lot. Um, okay. At Pfizer, I was doing preclinical dermatology. So I was helping to write and execute the animal studies. Um, mm. We were dermatology, so our animal was the pig. Mm -hmm. um, they were super cute, even though they were small. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, they have the skin that's closest to human. That's why we were using them. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, I got the... Um, IND, which is an investigational new drug application for the FDA. That's where my domain ended at Pfizer. Once an IND is made, then it can go into clinical trials. And the clinical trials was the building next to me. Okay. So did you participate in the clinical trials? No. Um, I got to deal with the people that did, so I would occasionally talk to them and be in meetings with them and mm. maybe advise them on some things as they were planning. Mm. Um, later on in my career, I got to do analysis of clinical trial data, mm. but no, I didn't actually get to conduct any of them because you need the MD or DO. Yeah, yeah. You can't deal with humans if you don't have that, right? Exactly. But I can deal with your data all day long. Oh, okay. Okay. So, um, after Pfizer, what happened after that? Um, well, at that point, Pfizer had made it clear mm. that in industry, if you wanted to be a study director, in other mm. words, running your own studies, mm. that you needed a PhD. So I left Pfizer to return to Michigan State to get a Ph.D. in cell and molecular biology. But very quickly into that program, I became pregnant with my firstborn. Mm -hmm. And so at that point, I struggled to really figure out how to be a new mom mm. and be a Ph.D. student at the same time. Mm -hmm. So I ended up getting far enough along in the program where I was granted the option to basically quit with a master's degree. Okay. And so that was my second master's in cell and molecular biology it is what I consider to be the, quote, failed Ph.D. attempt. But again, like life tends to do to me, 
I'm actually grateful that failed attempt happened. Mm-hmm. Because the lab I was in was a toxicology lab mm-hmm. that was looking at inflammatory bowel disease effects on pediatric bone formation. And so basically I was dealing with mice and using a drug to induce inflammatory bowel disease and then watching how the bone formation would change Mm. based on whether or not they were infected with inflammatory bowel disease. Mm. The trick here was that none of it was computational. Mm -hmm. All of it was wet bench. Um, which was great. I mean, I got to deal with the mice like I did, you know, back at Pfizer and that sort. Mm. But it just wasn't a really good fit for me. Mm. I was always at the lab. I was never home with my newborn baby. Oh. Um, I was constantly tired, so I never got to spend any time with the family. I was stressed out, and because of the lack of sleep from the infant, I was making mistakes in the laboratory, and those were costing my mentor money. So it was just a series of of things that I could not get to fit, which is why I decided it was just best for everybody if I focused on my family and my own mental health and just took the master's. And that was a really depressing time. I mean, I was told by my mentor at the time that if I dropped that PhD program, Mm -hmm. I would never get a PhD. And I told her point blank well, I guess that's just a risk I'm going to have to take because this cannot continue. And so I quit and I got another job in industry. Mm. But the job in industry, again, was full time. I was out of the home more than I wanted to be. Mm. So then I just said, you know what, I'm going to try this stay at home mom thing. Mm. But I'm one of those people I like to be active. And so it didn't take more than a month or two where I'm bored off my bored out of my mind. Mm. And I'm looking at my husband going, can I at least teach from home? Mm. And so I went and I got a job with the University of Phoenix, which is the largest online college in the United States, Mm -hmm. or at least it was at the time. I'm not sure if it is anymore. Okay. And so there I started teaching um, everything, environmental science, general health. Um, eventually anatomy and physiology, um, nutrition. They really didn't have any science programs. They had a general health program, mm. nothing really detailed. Yeah. But it gave me a part-time job that I could do from home and still be with the kids. And yeah. at this point, my younger daughter had then been born too. Mm-hmm. So that's what I did for about five years before going back into academia full time. Okay, okay. This is this is interesting. This is interesting. When you're looking back now, this PhD and this full time job, what do you think would have been done for you as a young mother for you to be able to still do them and be present as a mom, as a parent? Not yeah, as a parent. Yeah, yeah, I understand what you're asking. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, okay. First off, I think that there needs to be sufficient maternity leave. Mm-hmm. I was back at lab meetings with my oldest daughter in a basket after three weeks. Wow. And I had a cesarean. So this is a surgery birth. 
Um, and I have to walk across the 20-mile campus to get to my lab. And I'm carrying Serena, my, my oldest, and, you know, I still have stitches in my abdomen. Wait, there was no maternity uh, leave? Not very much in the United States, no. And it's a huge problem in all industries, not just science, not just academia, wow. not just graduate school. We have a 30% graduate student dropout rate, and part of that is lack of support for maternity. Now, things have gotten better. I mean, there are things like lactation rooms now where there weren't back in the day. I mean, I was breast pumping in my office that I shared with four other graduate students, including two men. But, you know, things were different 15 years ago than they are now. Wait, you know, hey, you know, um, I don't know. Uh, there's, there's, this, this, there's this conversation on Twitter. There's a lady from US, a journalist, I think. Yeah, a journalist. Okay. And mm -hmm. uh, they were having this discussion about something. Then she mentioned uh, about equal rights to do with voting in US, something to do with that. I don't know exactly what the context of the conversation was. But mm -hmm. she mentioned Kenya in that conversation and said, you know, it's, we are better off uh, because countries like Kenya where uh, pregnant women cannot go out because they fear for their life and they cannot go out to vote. They are not allowed to vote. And there was this star from Kenyans. You know, Kenyans on Twitter are pretty much bullies. And uh, if you attack them, they will attack you back. Or if you okay. say something that is not correct, they will really attack you. And uh, one of the, the, com the things that I saw was on TikTok, a lady who is Kenyan and is currently in the U.S. said something. Uh, a, a whole video concerning that and she was trying to compare so now she, she turned it into the benefits of pregnant women in both countries because she's gotten a child in Kenya and also gotten a child in US as a working mom and she was trying to say uh, and, and that that thing what you're saying came out like uh, if you the maternity leave like you don't get paid maternity leave Correct. something like that and in Kenya, we get three months paid maternity leave. And yet, I don't know, we're complaining about with it with someone else about the three months or like the three months is so short, blah, 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 blah. But I was surprised to see that video. I was like, what? You mean U.S. actually don't have maternity leave that is paid? No, like no, if you're, we don't. Like if you're pregnant, you're just done for? Pretty much. I mean, I wish I wasn't saying that, but sadly, it's more true than I'd like to admit. I mean, I remember when I was pregnant with Serena, the um, insurance that I had through the university was claiming that they would not pay for her because she was a pre-existing condition. And I was What? like, I was not born pregnant. <laughs> This is not a pre-existing condition. Are you trying to stress me out so I'll have this What? baby early? And finally, they said, well, you've had her to term. I guess you were you got pregnant after you started at the, the MSU, so we'll pay for her. But, I mean, it took nine months of fighting them for them to cover my medical bills. And, and also something else, talking about medical bills, something else she also, she also compared was... Um, maternity bills like in kenya it's to get to give birth is free 
uh, in the hospital. It's free as it's ten thousand dollars plus here. Are you kidding me? <laughs> That's crazy. You, you better have insurance, or you're. I don't know how these people have babies without insurance in my country. Wow. Because that's very expensive. Mm-hmm. Very expensive, yes. And you, it's expensive. It's expensive to give birth. Uh, and uh, here you don't have maternity cover, maternity leave, paid maternity leave if you leave. That's so... Okay. okay. So how do you... Okay, fine. <laughs> I know. I feel the same way. <laughs> That's pretty stressful. So I can imagine, how do you say equal, equal, equal access to education for all if women have to go through that? Yeah, I, I don't know how we claim that either. We claim a lot of things in the United States. I, I'm not sure we can claim anymore. Okay, fine. Um. Sorry, sorry to hear that. So uh, this is interesting. This uh, this uh, bad thing that happened at that time made you go into teaching. Yes. So looking back, uh, do you think that five years of teaching um, has shaped you in any way now? In other words, how has five years of teaching changed me to where I am now? Yes. Yes. Okay. Um, well, I mean, I found that I actually like teaching mm. mostly. Mm -hmm. I mean, there are going to be people that like don't really want to learn. They're only there because they have to be. Mm -hmm. Those are never fun people to teach. Mm -hmm. But those that genuinely want to learn what they're learning are actually fun to teach. Mm -hmm. um, and we had a lot of fun in my classes uh, doing those kind of, of lectures that we called them pick Laura's brain. Mm -hmm. Um, when we ran out of material, they were allowed to just ask me whatever came to mind mm -hmm. and I would try to answer it or I would look it up for them. Mm -hmm. um, but those were good times. Um, and allowed me the flexibility to be home with the kids when I needed to be, uh, mm -hmm. even when I started teaching outside of the home and actually going into the university classrooms, mm. you know, by this time they're in school and now I'm in school, so to speak. Um, so yeah, that, those were good times. Uh, Davenport was special because they were the ones who wanted me full time. All the other places I taught at, they were fine with me being a part-time adjunct teacher. Mm -hmm. And there's a huge market in the United States for adjunct teachers. You would, like, get three part-time jobs together to create a full-time job. Mm. But the problem is that doesn't come with benefits like insurance and retirement and maternity leave mm. if you're lucky enough to get it. Mm. So, you know, that was also a challenge. When I went into Davenport full-time, um, the kids were in school. That helped. Mm -hmm. But that at least gave me the benefits, um, which I still enjoy today. Mm. How do you enjoy them today? Oh, um, well, I mean, I just started a retirement plan through my startup company. Oh. Um, so I'm putting money away for the future. Um, I get health insurance, vision insurance, dental insurance for myself and for my family. Mm -hmm. um, I get unlimited paid time off now. 
Mm -hmm. Um, So if I wanted to get pregnant again, that would not be a problem anymore. Mm -hmm. But my husband still struggles to get, frankly, almost any time off. Um, And I can remember being in labor with my youngest and his work calling him and telling him to come into work. And he was like, no, I took these two weeks off. I'm literally in the delivery room. Mm. And the doctor, sorry, and the uh, boss was like, well, you can't really help your wife deliver, so wow. go run these calls. Rob quit that job about two months later. Wow. <laughs> but, uh, <yeah. laughs> wow. <laughs> what? The audacity. Anyway. Um, yeah, that's what he said. <laughs> <laughs> I think I might have said it at the time, too. <laughs> Rather loudly. Um... Okay. Um so now this is what, what which year are we in after the 5 years? Um well I mean at Davenport I was there actually about seven and a half total. <laughs> and about year 4, year 3, mm. I started my PhD program. Okay. So and I I so- want I want to understand that transition, uh, like tra- yes. the transition to doing a PhD and why. Yep. Uh, you you had been teaching at this point for five years, right? Before you started yeah. your PhD. Yeah, yeah. Why? Why did you move to a PhD? Why, why, what made you um, want to do a PhD at that point? Um. Well, really, again, it was about advancement. Mm-hmm. So in order to get further into the academic ranks, you mm-hmm. had to have a terminal degree. Yeah. And a PhD was considered a terminal degree, Mm. as was an MD, a DO, or what I'll talk about now is an ED, uh, an educational degree. Mm -hmm. And so at Davenport, they were a teaching institution. They didn't do research. They did teaching. Mm -hmm. So training nurses, but not scientists. They Mm -hmm. were just starting to get into the science gig. And um, at that point in time, my coworkers were mainly going for EDs, so they were learning how to teach better. Mm. But I always teased, I don't care how you learn, I just care that you learn. Mm. And I was more interested in getting a PhD in a research field, so then that way I was specialized in an area. And I didn't have a wet bench at the time because we were a teaching institution. My Mm. wet bench was like literally a classroom. Mm -hmm. And so I knew I had a computer and Dr. Jackson had shown me like 15 years prior that you can use a computer for research. Mm. So I decided to go to Coursera Mm -hmm. and I took a $50 class on Coursera on introduction to python Mm -hmm. and that taught me python which then i used to start doing my own research on the side with some of my students Mm -hmm. but also then to look at a phd program and say hey i'd like to apply for a program in bioinformatics and i already know something about programming Mm. 
And so I got into Rutgers, which was an entirely online PhD program, uh-huh. which was perfect because then yeah. I could be home with the kids. I could continue Work. teaching full time. Yes. I could continue doing research and fit in the PhD. Yeah. So it became a very busy five years while I was in my PhD program and doing all this other stuff. But I mean, it was very rewarding. Um, lots of posters, lots of papers, lots of awards, a lots of presentations, a lot of travel. Mm. Um, and I got to take the kids along with me through quite a bit of that. So that was fun. Hmm. Nice. You, some more funding also, you know, bringing a child with you. Yeah, yeah. And I still do. I mean, I just was at uh, the American Society for Microbiology in Washington, D.C. last month. Mm. And uh, we made it a mini family trip where we just all four of us went out there for a week. My husband had never seen our nation's capital, even though he's you know born here. Mm. Um, So I told him you have to see the White House once. Mm. But um, yeah, so that was fun for them. And then they spent a day at the conference. Mm. So, you know, my daughter was very excited to see all the different equipment and um, Mm. talk to the vendors and that sort. So my other daughter was into the posters more. Oh, that's interesting. That's uh, that's an interesting side of a scientist life, right? Like uh, you get to bring your family to work. (laughs) I don't think enough scientists do it. Mm. I do realize it does get a bit expensive um, um, because like to get my family into the conference, I think it was a couple hundred dollars. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I've already got part of the hotel paid for by the conference because I'm on the board for the conference. Yes. Um, so if I've got the hotel paid for, you might as well just room with me. It's cheaper. Yeah. Yeah, 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 that's true. Oh, so everything becomes cheaper in general, but it's not a common thing, right? Correct. I mean, I didn't see very many kids there otherwise. Uh, how how did that, I know it's a month ago, but uh, how was that, uh, I don't know. What do your kids say after that experience? They want to go back. <laughs> <laughs> my youngest in particular, I, I tease mm. both my kids, they'll sell out for merchandise. And vendors at conferences are just awesome for giving out all sorts of merchandise, just uh, bags of pens and cups and stuffed animals and socks and shirts and hats and all sorts of stuff. Uh, so my kids kind of act like it's Halloween and they're going trick-or-treating. <laughs> well, they'll just go to every vendor and try to get what they can. Yeah. But it's fun because then they're learning along the way, too, yeah. because, you know, here's this weird machine. And in order to get the pen, I've got to listen to a five minute spiel on this machine. Mm. And so then they start learning stuff and they'll be like, wait a second, this machine is similar to the one I saw three pens ago. Mm. And then they'll ask me. Which becomes a whole nother fun thing because then I get to share things I know and then the vendors will overhear the conversation and, well, you actually do know how this works. Oh, yeah, I used it in the lab for two years. Mm. You know, that informal networking kind of thing. Yeah, and that's conversation. That's science communication 
I've never thought of sans communication like that. Like, especially with people who are close to us, we don't really do that. We don't really explain the details of what you're doing with the people we are close to, right? Other people don't. Oh, you I guess do. I tend to, yes. Yeah. Um, and that's just because it's part of my existence. Mm. Um, my family teases that I am a workaholic. Mm -hmm. And it's because I love what I do. Mm -hmm. So for them to like, you know, walk into my office right now, as soon as I'm off of this podcast, I'll be telling them, oh, here's some of the stuff we talked about. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I'll be working at my startup, you know, and if I'm running into a problem, yeah, here's part of the problem that I'm having. Mm -hmm. But it's interesting because you get a different perspective and that different perspective can actually help you overcome problems or think of a different way that you hadn't thought of before. Yeah. And I find that scientists do great doing that with other scientists, but there's a wealth of knowledge out there in the non-scientists. Uh, and a lot hmm. of times, like, my good friend, for example, stocks shelves at the local grocery store. Uh, but she's, like, read my dissertation. And I remember when she read it, she was saying, you know, this is a foreign language to me. I, I don't understand any of it. Mm. Can you explain it in a simpler terminology? Mm. Oh, well, if I'm able to do that, then I better understand what I'm doing myself. Yeah. And then I can get to simple explanations like that house and the good and bad neighbors. Mm. So, you know, in the Nobel Prize winning community, they talk a lot about, you know, simple explanations, meaning that you really understand what you're talking about. And if you can connect with people that are non-scientists and get them to understand what you're talking about, you understand it that much better, too. Wow. Simple explanation means you understand what you're doing. Mm-hmm. That's, 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 I, 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 oh my God. That might yes. hit some people very, <laughs> in a certain place, they don't want to be hit. Especially some scientists who believe that they, they don't have to explain in the simplest manner. But that's great, like, that's a great insight. Like, if you actually can explain to someone who's not in science what you're doing and they understand what you're saying, then you actually understand what you're saying. Yeah, exactly. Uh, in the United States, we have a game show, uh, Are You Smarter Than a Fifth Grader? Mm. And it's been fun because my younger daughter um, is in seventh grade now, but we use her as the marker. If mm. Lily can understand it, you have explained it properly. Mm. But now she likes to remind me, well, I'm in seventh grade now. I'm smarter than a fifth grader. <laughs> okay, fine. I'll find someone younger. <laughs> <laughs> okay. 